Good morning, church. How are you guys doing? It's good to be with you. Um, as Brian said, my name is Ryan. I am uh, one of the pastoral apprentices here at Church 21. Um, and so uh, I uh, was raised in Texas um, for most of my life. I was born in uh, the Ontario, Toronto area, um, lived in Burlington, Ontario, and then moved uh, down to Texas and met my wife down there. Uh, she's an Alabama girl. And uh, so she's the real deal Southern. Um, and uh, I just pretend and we, we moved up here um, specifically to be a part of this church, to train here because this church is passionate about church planting in Canada. And we want to see churches planted in Canada. We want to see Canada treasure Christ. And so every time I get to speak with you, it is a privilege. Um, I uh, got to speak with you two weeks ago, um, and that was on the story of Stephen. And I'm excited about what we're going to talk about this week. So I just want to pray one more time, um, and uh, then we'll just jump right in. Um, Father, uh, I just uh, confess my need for you, um, desperately need your strength, your ability. There is nothing that man can do apart from your grace. And so, Lord, I ask uh, that you would speak clearly through me, that I would speak truth, I would speak it clearly, and I would speak it with your power, and uh, that we would be drawn closer to you because of it. We need you. We need to hear a word from you this morning, and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so, uh, as I said, I was born in the Toronto area and I lived in Burlington, Ontario. Uh, is anybody from Burlington here? Just curious. Maybe one person. I know there's one person. So, um, you and me, we're friends. Um, so I was born in the Burlington area and went to a school called Bruce T. Lindley. It was the only school I went to there besides preschool. Um, moved to Texas when I was seven. So I did grade one, then I moved to Texas. And because I did French immersion here and wasn't caught up with English yet, couldn't spell anything but my name, they put me back in first grade there and I did it again. Um, but in first grade in Canada, actually in kindergarten in Canada at Bruce T. Lindley, uh, I had a teacher named Mrs. Wilson. Um, and in Mrs. Wilson's class, um, every day uh, we would sit down during story time. You probably remember you had a similar experience um, where you would gather together and you'd sit down and you'd sit with your friends and be story time. Um, and there was a kid in our class who was just the coolest kid, um, in my opinion, in the school. Uh, his name was Ross. And the reason Ross was cool... Kindergarten's a weird place. Um, the reason Ross was the coolest kid was because he knew more about dinosaurs than anybody in the class. Um, and that made him awesome. Not only did he know more about dinosaurs, um, his parents had let him grow one of his fingernails out like a raptor claw, which is disgusting. But when you're six years old, it's the coolest thing in the world. And so Ross was the coolest kid. And I just like wanted to be his friend. I, I was his friend. I would sit with him in this group. And every day at story time, we'd sit in this little row um, waiting for uh, Miss Wilson to read to us or if it was time to do presentations for like show and tell. And uh, we'd sit with this little, this little group of the cool kids who were cool because we were sitting with Ross. Um, and so one day uh, during story time, we sit down there um, and you know, I'm, I'm surely I'm, I'm having a great time because I'm part of this group and it just is awesome to be a part of this group. And I'm sitting with them um, and uh, yeah, just excited to be a part in, until this day where something changed. And so one of the kids sitting next to me um, turns to me and goes, why do you sit with us every day? Um, 
he, he asked me that and you know, you're six years old, seven years old, you, you say really blunt things. And so he just turns to me and asks me that and something shifted in my worldview in that moment in, in, for that day and for the rest of my life, um, that, that really played, um, it's amazing how these things can make an impact on you. For the first time that I can remember in my life, I went from being in, in part of the group to being excluded, um, to, to being not a part, to being different, to feeling like I'm an imposter by sitting with these kids. They're the cool kids and I'm just trying to be a part of it. Um, I felt the pain of exclusion for the first time in my life. And with a group this size in this room, what I know, for, for me, that wasn't the last time that I felt the pain of exclusion. Um, and I know in a room like this, there are far more tragic stories than in six year, being six years old and not being able to sit with the cool kids. That we have all in different ways felt the pain of exclusion. Um, we felt different. We felt other and, and not in a good way. Um, throughout history, this has just been the case in humanity. This is something that is common to humanity that we've felt for various reasons, maybe uh, for uh, your personality, um, maybe for your ability, maybe because of your race, um, maybe because of your height, your age, um, your gender, maybe even your sexuality, maybe for all of these different reasons, you name one, uh, we've felt the pain of exclusion. Whether that exclusion was just or unjust, it was painful. Uh, It doesn't feel good to be pushed out of the group. It's painful. Um, And in postmodern Western culture where we live, um, there's been an attempt to kind of remedy this problem. Uh, Interestingly, um, in our current day and age, one of the chief aims of justice for postmodern Western world is to eliminate all exclusion. That inclusion is actually, for many, the chiefest aim of justice, that eliminate boundaries, eliminate borders, let us be apart. Come one, come all, as you are. Uh, And that exclusion has actually become synonymous with injustice. And this this can come from a good impulse. Um, So like, what is love if not to want the good of my neighbor, right? And so if my neighbor is outside the door and I've got the food and they're starving, love doesn't bar the door, right? Love breaks down the door, it opens the door, it welcomes them in. So it's a good impulse from us that would say, it it seems loving that I would want to include others. I would want to fight for inclusion. And so there there can be a good impulse in this thing that's happening in our culture. Um, But the thing about what I said right there is that everyone can amen that. Everyone can amen that we should love our neighbor. Nobody differs about the fact that we should love our neighbor, um, at least not uh, on on a public platform, right? We we can all say that that seems good. That seems right. Yes, we want to include others. But the problem with what I just said is that I'm speaking in generalities. Um, No one's going to disagree that we should love our neighbor. The question is, what does love look like? The question is, what is the good that my neighbor needs that I should desire for my neighbor? When we're talking in generalities, the church in the world can, can get together. And, you know, as, as Jenny said in that song, amen means that I agree. It's, it's saying that's true. I, I agree with that. We can amen together that we should love 
our neighbor in the generalities. But Christianity is not a faith of generalities. It's a faith of glorious specifics. Like the, the goodness of the, of the truth is in the specifics. They are glorious. And if we lose the specifics, we lose the faith. We lose Christianity. We lose the message. And so we have to ask as a church, this series we're in, we're saying we want to be the church. It's called being the church. We're going through the book of Acts, looking at the early church and saying, how did they live and how can we live like them? So, so you might not know this, but at, at church 21, like our, our name means a church for the, part of the name. It has a few different meanings, but one is that we're a church for the 21st century. And when we say we're a church for the 21st century, we don't mean that we have suddenly arrived at this new doctrine that is just so much better than anyone else ever had in history. We, we don't live in this bubble of new perfection, but that we're actually the same church, the same faith in a different century, in a different time, that we want to communicate the glorious ancient truths in a way that makes sense to modern ears. Not that it makes sense because it changes the truth, but that we're showing how this is the most relevant information in the universe. And so as we're trying to be that church, and as we're going through the book of Acts, one of the questions we need to ask is are we to be a church that is inclusive or exclusive? This is an important question. Is, is inclusion the chiefest aim of love? Un, uh, unconditional inclusion. Or, or are we to be exclusive in any way? Is there a way in which we should be exclusive? And if we're going to answer this question, one of the biblical ways, the best way to ask this, to answer this question uh, is first to say, what is God like? Is God inclusive or is God exclusive? We want to be a church that reflects the holiness, the character of God to this world. So what is he like and what is he calling us to be like? And so as we're looking today in this story, we, we looked at Stephen a few weeks ago, his story as he finished his race faithfully. Today we're looking at the story of another guy named Philip, who was actually one of uh, the deacons. Um, a lot, we, we think they were deacons, these leaders that were appointed in the early church um, to serve tables in Jerusalem so that the apostles could go and preach the word. Stephen was the first, and we saw his story as he was faithful unto death. And then a, a different guy steps into view, a different character steps into the main view of the author, and it's Philip. And we're going to see in Philip's story... Um, just how we can answer this question was, was Philip's story showing us that God is exclusive or inclusive. He's going to come to this Ethiopian eunuch and we're going to see some glorious things. And what we're going to find, I just want to tell you up front, what we're going to see is that God is both inclusive and exclusive, that he is more exclusive than you are, than I am in our nature. He's more exclusive than most of us are naturally comfortable with. He's more exclusive than any of us, but he's also more inclusive than any of us. And that these things are both gloriously true in different ways. So we want to know what are the different ways and how can we mirror that? How can we be the church that is inclusive like God and exclusive like God? What does that mean? So let's jump in. Um, starting with this first reality that God is radically exclusive. 
we're going to see this is good news. It, it, it's going to come off at first as hard news. And, and this, I actually want to say this before we track through this. Uh, you may hear things in this sermon that at first don't sit well with you. They might not sit well with you at the end. Um, but they're gloriously beautiful truths. Stick with this text. Stick through it. Wait through it. And let's see the glory in this. So Philip's story starts like this. We're going to see that God is radically exclusive. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. So Philip, he's, he's actually like earlier in this story, we don't have time to go through all of Philip's story, but earlier in the story, um, he goes into Samaria and he's preaching the gospel in this place called Samaria. And what we see is that Philip has uh, this awesome thing going there and then he's sent this way. He's, he's sent to this eunuch and there's something that we need to understand, I think, about eunuchs. There, a lot of times in, in the 21st century, uh, there's things that we can see in the Bible that we, we miss if we don't look closer and don't understand the context. So what you may or may not know about Christianity is Christianity is a Jewish religion, that it is actually the fulfillment of Judaism. We believe that without apology, that the, the Jewish people were waiting for the king who is Jesus, and that he came and he's coming again. And as you're looking at this Jewish religion, uh, and if you're familiar with what's called the Old Testament, that we have, we have our Bibles in the first half of this Bible, um, roughly the first half, is this section called the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. It's this old, all, all the things that happened before Jesus came. Then the New Testament is the unfolding of the glories of the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Christ. Um, and, uh, if you're familiar with the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the law of the Old Testament, then you might know some things about eunuchs uh, that, that others might not know. So I, I want to draw us into that. I want us to see some of these things that are going to be uncomfortable. Uh, as you hear these texts, as you hear these laws that are in the Old Covenant, it's probably not going to sit well at first. Um, but track with me on this. So I, I want to read this to you. It's from Leviticus 21, 16 through 24. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron. Um, Aaron was Moses' brother. He's a priest. Um, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish, it's going to be a key word, a blemish, may, sh- uh, sh- uh, may approach the offer, or approach to offer the bread of his God. And no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame, meaning he can't walk, or one who has a mutilated face, or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot, or an injured hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man, and just to say that's the language in in this translation for dwarf, um, but or a man with a defect in his hand, or an itching disease, or scabs, or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron, who the priest who has a, 
of the offspring of Aaron, the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuaries for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel. So this text right here is regarding the priesthood. Um, Aaron was a priest in, in the tribe of Aaron were, were priests uh, at this point in time, or at least his people were, were priests. And what it's telling us is that any of the priests cannot come into the presence of God if they have these blemishes, these defects that go everywhere from a broken hand to being a eunuch to having scabs. Um, it, it, it is expansive, but it, it has these specific people, these specific instances that says you cannot come into the presence of God um, offering this. They, they could be part of the Jewish people. And if they were in this, this tribe that was uh, getting their food from uh, the temple, uh, they could enjoy the food, but they weren't allowed to enter in. Um, that their presence, their very presence, it says, would profane the sanctuary. And this is uncomfortable. This is, this is one of these things that we, we like to skip over these verses when we read them. And we might not want to proclaim this out to 21st century Canada, right? This isn't something that we at first would say, I'm, I'm proud of that this is in the Bible. Uh, maybe we struggle with these things. Maybe we try not to think about them because they mess with our heads. Uh, but it's not just for, uh, it's not just for the priesthood. He, he actually, they up the ante in Deuteronomy 23.1. The exclusion is even greater. It says, No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. So that word assembly um, is a Hebrew word. And in Jesus' day, uh, they used a version of the, the Old Testament scriptures written in Hebrew that had been translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint, or if you ever see LXX, that's the shorthand for the Septuagint, which means the 70. It was translated by 70 scholars, um, and legend has it that they all translated it exactly the same um, by God's leading, which is amazing. And so the, the New Testament, when it quotes the Old Testament, often it's quoting uh, the Septuagint. It's quoting that text and that translation. Well, the reason this is relevant, that word assembly in the Septuagint is translated into the Greek word ekklesia. And if you know that word, it, it means church. It means gathering. That's what this is. That we, when we say we are the gathering, we are the gathered people of God. The assembly is what it's talking about. And so in the Old Testament assembly, the gathered people of God, not only in the presence of God in the sanctuary, but the eunuch was forbidden from coming into the gathered people of God. This was ostracizing. This was painful. This was a reality to be a part of the set apart people of God and not to be able to enjoy not only God's presence, but God's people worshiping together. This seems odd. This seems a tragic life to live. And what's worse is that most eunuchs didn't choose to be eunuchs. Like you could be born this way um, with either dysfunctioning parts or maybe your intersex or somebody would make you a eunuch most, most of the time so you would serve in a royal court and be able to be trusted. 
which is most likely what we see here. It said that he was, uh, he worked for Candace, uh, the queen of Ethiopia. And Candace, uh, I read, is actually a, uh, it is a title for the queen of Ethiopia. And so this man, uh, likely in there, working there, possibly not by his own will, possibly a slave, uh, is serving as the treasurer, and he's trustworthy because he's been emasculated. And so they trust him around the queen. Uh, a lot of times this happened where they did not choose this. And for something that didn't happen to these people, um, by their own choice, whether it's by birth defect, whether it's by... Uh, somebody doing it to them, they are now ostracized. This is painful. This is strange. And, and for this Jewish man, for what, what, or for this Ethiopian eunuch, um, the question might come up, is he a Jewish person? Is he a Gentile? It's not entirely clear. I think he's probably Jewish because he's going to Israel to worship, um, even though he's an Ethiopian. Um, and because... Uh, Later in the book of Acts, actually next week we're going to see, I think, uh, the story. It's in the next week or next two weeks, the story of the Gentiles being included in the church. So it seems that he's Jewish or at least a like a God-fearing Gentile. Um, but regardless of what he was, uh, this is his faith. He wants to worship God and he is barred from the full experience of the benefits of the people of God. So what's going on here? Um, Is this just primitive or like, is this a man-made law that's just meant to keep people who are different out? Or or is God in the Old Testament a different God uh, than the New Testament? That's a a heresy that that has been preached in history at times. Uh, or, Or did he change his tune? Did God change his mind? Did he loosen up or soften up in the New Testament? And uh, the answer to these is, is no across the board. He, he didn't change. He's not a different God. And he's not unjust. God is never unjust. So what's happening here? Like, how can that be true when this eunuch didn't choose this? Uh, and, and to understand this, we, th- there's these concepts, these, these linked kind of blurring concepts that we have to understand from the Old Testament law. Uh, the, the two concepts are, are these, that there's the holy and the common, and then there's the clean and the unclean. The holy and the common and the clean and the unclean. If you can understand this, uh, it is going to help unlock a lot of these questions in the Old Testament law. What is happening with all of these prohibitions? And it's not only prohibitions regarding that. There's prohibitions regarding what you eat. There's prohibitions regarding uh, all kinds of things. And we're going to see some of this. And so you likely know the word holy. You, you, maybe you, you use it often. Um, but the word holy f- simply means to be set apart. Um, it has mul- it's multidimensional. It has this aspect of being set apart in moral purity, um, in moral wholesomeness and goodness. But, it, but it's a, a blanket word that also just is to be set apart in a class of its own. So when we say God is set apart, we're saying he's different from everything else. Like he's holy, holy, holy. The most holy of all beings because he created everything. Everything in this universe is derivative of God in its existence. He spoke it into being. God is altogether holy, but he's not only holy in his being as creator. He's holy in his character, perfectly pure, perfectly set apart, worth treasuring and cherishing. 
And when we think of something as uh, being set apart and holy, like so th- this is an accurate way of seeing it. Um, but the Bible would teach that to treat, in this concept of the holy and the common, uh, that to treat what is holy as if it were not holy or common is to profane its holiness. Um, that's the idea. This profaning the sanctuary is to treat the sanctuary as a common place. And so maybe uh, you... You've heard people use, or you've done it yourself. You've most probably you've used the word holy at the, as the first part of maybe an expletive. Um, and, and what do we call that? We call it profanity. Why? Because we are treating what is holy as if it were not. We're using it to tear things down. So when we treat the holy as common and as unholy, that's profanity. We're profaning the sanctuary or profaning the name of God to use his name in vain is to profane his name. And that's where that concept comes from. And so, uh, this idea of the holy and the common, so we don't want to treat the holy as common. We don't want to treat the holy as if it were not. And so, uh, the cleanliness laws specifically, this idea of clean and unclean, what we see is a specific expression of this holy and common ideal, uh, this specific application of what could treat the holy as common. And so what we would see is that if a person came in contact with maybe something that was dead or uh, decaying, like certain types of mold, or um, maybe they came in contact with bodily fluids that are meant for life, but not being used for life, that person would be rendered unclean. Um, and to be unclean was not sinful. Um, it wasn't a sin to become unclean. What's sinful is what you do with your uncleanness. If you take that uncleanness into a holy place and you regard it as common, then what you've done is, is you've profaned the sanctuary. Or in the gathered people, if you bring uncleanness into the camp and you spread it to other people, like that would be sinful. If you purposefully do that, maybe even accidental in some cases. And so... This idea of cleanliness, it's, it's tied directly to this, but it's kind of a unique take on it. And so um, an example uh, in kind of how this would work. My house, my wife and I, we just moved into a new apartment. And unfortunately, we found that we didn't see when we were looking at it until we were moving in. And until we'd already been handed the key, we didn't know that there was black mold in the bathroom. Um, which is disgusting. It's going to be not that hard of a fix, but we haven't fixed it yet. And, and here's the thing about the bathroom. It's, it's, it's right above the toilet. And guess what I don't want to do in the bathroom? Anything. I don't want to be in that bathroom because there's black mold in there. I'm breathing in this defilement. Um, that sin is like that. It, it defiles the place that it's in. There is this pollution aspect to it. And that word profane has this other quality to it as, as you translate it. Sometimes it's translated polluted or uh, defiled. And, and what we're seeing in this image is that these cleanliness laws are painting a picture of what happens when we sin, when we bring sin into the presence of God, when we treat the holy as if it were not, which is the very essence of sin. To, to regard God in his greatness as not worthy of full adoration and praise is sin. That is the essence of sin. In, in these cleanliness not laws, they are a specific expression painting a picture of the uncleanliness of our hearts. And so God is actually painting a picture 
through this. Uh, he, in the Old Testament law, what God is doing is he is preaching a sermon to the world about what he's like. That he is holy, dwelling in unapproachable light. That he is worthy of all praise, all worship, all adoration. And that to treat his holiness as common is sin. It is condemnable. It doesn't, it's not worthy of his presence. It's profaning his holiness. God was preaching a message in the Old Testament about his holiness. And and what this tells us is that we desperately need a savior. We desperately need a perfect priest without blemish to bring a perfect sacrifice without blemish so that we can come into the presence of God. God was intentionally showing the exclusive nature of his presence in the Old Testament through these symbols, through these pictures that are seen both in the cleanliness laws and specifically all as well with this eunuch. Regarding the eunuch specifically, we don't know that a eunuch was necessarily considered unclean, at least I, from my study, I haven't been able to see that because if you came in contact with the eunuch, you weren't unclean. Um, but there's some relation in there of this idea of coming in not a, like without blemish or with blemish, profaning the sanctuary, that God has set these things and he's done it as a picture to show us that we need a perfect priest and we need a perfect sacrifice. The uncleanness and the blemishes are pictures of the deeper uncleanness and the deeper blemishes of the corruption within our hearts. But this isn't the end of God's sermon. Galatians 3.24 tells us that the law actually served this purpose. It says this, Then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Paul is writing this in the New Testament, explaining the purpose of the law. He says, The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And so Christians, we believe that we are made right with God on the basis of connection to Jesus through faith, that his sacrifice makes us right with him. In the law, Paul says, is actually purposely a part of that message to prepare us. That word, uh, that word guardian is also translated schoolmaster. It's this guardian schoolmaster, kind of like you're, go- you're sent away to a boarding school and this person is in charge of you and he's, to, he's there to prepare you for what's to come in your life. And the thing that the law was our guardian for, to prepare us for, was the gospel. It was the good news of Jesus. Um, and so this isn't just in the New Testament. This is in the Old Testament itself. I want to show you Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This is talking about the fact that God made this old law, this old covenant, and he's got a new one coming. Let's read it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them out, took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity 
and I will remember their sin no more. Amen to that. So the eunuch's painful exclusion isn't meant to be permanent. It never was meant to be permanent. It's part of a plan for a glorious and vast inclusion. It is showing us something of our great need for a savior, that God is immeasurably holy and worthy of praise and that the effects of sin, death, decay, all of these things, the, the brokenness, the deformity that happens in this world, that these things are, are not worthy of the presence of God in and of themselves, that these things are, are expressions of sin's presence in the world, which is abhorrent to God. Sin, God hates sin. And so he sends a savior that he plans to save us from our, from sin's penalty and from sin's presence in this world forever, that we will be made whole. The law was part of the sermon, but it's not the end. The good news is coming for the eunuch and for us. It's on purpose, and it's part of the message. And the next part is that God is radically inclusive. He is more inclusive than you. He's more inclusive than me. He's more inclusive than the most inclusive person in this country. God is radically inclusive. We're going to see how. So a quick rewind, uh, book of Acts, the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus is with his disciples and he's sending them out. And this is what he says in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus had this plan for his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, that it wouldn't just stay in Jerusalem, but it would go everywhere And at this point in the story, up until this point, up until Stephen's death, it has stayed within Jerusalem. The good news has stayed in the Jerusalem area and Galilee and uh, all of everything stayed in here. And it's going well. The church is flourishing and, and then persecution comes and God uses the persecution to spread his people out. Acts 8, 4 says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So persecution comes. Uh, We think that this is bad news for the church, but what God does is he uses this persecution to spread them out and they're scattered on mission. We say that often here, that every week we scatter around the city on mission. And, And that's what we see happening here. And Philip goes to Samaria and he preaches the gospel and he's having wild success. Like people are coming to faith. He's on his way to like a a thriving church plant. Um, And and he might as well just stay there and, and shepherd this people and see God at work. But God's not okay with that. God has plans, not just for Samaria, the ends of the earth, he said. And, and so God sends him an angel and the angel comes to him and says, hey, go down this road. Uh, go down this road and, and he brings him to this eunuch, this Ethiopian eunuch from a different country, the ends of the earth, reading a prophecy from Isaiah about none other than Christ himself. And he asks the preacher to tell him who it's about. That's the best. Uh, if you walk outside and someone walks up to you and says, hey, who, can you tell me about Jesus? Like, that's what's happening here. It's just, it, it's God's laying it out for him. And so let's just read this again real quick. It says, and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran and heard him, uh, ran to him. I love that. He ran to him. Are we running to the lost in our city? He ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. 
and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading is this. I love this passage of scripture. This is from Isaiah 53. You should read it. You should know it. You should know it deeply. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before his shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask, does the prophet Isaiah say this? Is he talking about himself or about someone else? The Philip, or, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. So Philip explains the gospel and he starts right here with this Old Testament passage of scripture written 700 years before Jesus would ever come. He begins with this passage of scripture. I want to ask you, if someone brought you the Old Testament, would you be able to show them, if you're a follower of Jesus, would you be able to show them Jesus in the Old Testament? Do you know your Old Testament well enough? I, I know when I first came to faith, I, I wanted to spend most of my time in the New Testament. It's, it's clear. It's, it's about Jesus. Um, but the Old Testament is not something that we've moved on from. There's a, a famous preacher in the U.S. who said that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. He couldn't be more wrong. The Old Testament is unlocked by the sight of glory of Jesus. And we see throughout the pages, beauty upon beauty and wonder upon wonder. Know your Old Testament. Get to know it. It it will take time. It will take work. But it is worth it. And there is glory to be seen there. So Philip knew this. He knew that there was beauty in the Old Testament. He knew Christ was in all of the pages. And he shows him this gospel. He shows him this message about Jesus, who is the one who was humiliated, who is the one who justice was denied to, who is the one who was sacrificed like a sheep before his shears, was silent, and he died for us. All it tells us is that he, he told him the good news about Jesus. It doesn't tell us exactly what, but I want to point, you out some, point something out to you just a little bit earlier in this passage that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading that blew my mind this week. This is beautiful. It says, um, so it, if you remember, um, the eunuch's disorder, the eunuch's issue was referred to as a blemish in Leviticus. Do you remember that? It, it was called a blemish, and we said that was an important word. Here's, here's why. Uh, in Leviticus 21, I just want to read that again. It says, No man of the, offering, uh, of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to, the Lord, uh, to offer the Lord's food offering since he has a blemish. He shall not come near to offer the bread of the Lord. He may eat the bread of the Lord of his God, but of the most holy and of the holy things, uh, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish and he may, that he may not profane the sanctuaries. His blemish would bring a profaning of the sanctuaries. That word blemish in Hebrew uh, is the word, I'm pro- I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correct, but this is how it's spelled. It's, it's mum, like, like you might call your mom. Um, it's, it's this word mum. Don't call your mom blemish, um, but it's, it's this word mum in Hebrew. And in Leviticus 22.25, we see it linked with this other word, uh, 
not necessarily synonymous, uh, but more of a, uh, you could say it's like a categorical term, an umbrella term under which this other word is going to be related. You'll see. Uh, so Leviticus twenty two twenty five it says, neither shall you offer as bread. Uh, this, this is real quick. This is talking about um, offering to God um, and it's prohibiting offering from animals that are eunuchs themselves. And so it says, neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals from a foreigner. So bread there is a metaphor as offering this provision. Neither shall you offer uh, from any such animals uh, gotten from a foreigner. Specifically, these are animals that are, are eunuchs. Um, since there is a blemish in them because of their mutilation. This word for mutilation comes from the, the word mishath. Um, and, and it says because they have this mishath, because they have this mutilation, they have a blemish. It's it's specific form of the blemish. So uh, a, a eunuch has been mutilated in a sense, um, not in a sense. It, it has been mutilated, mutilated, and because of that, they have a specific type of blemish. And so you can't come into the presence of God with these kinds of blemish. Right? It's this categorical term. So here's the, here's why this is incredible. This is why I, this isn't just to show you. Oh, cool! He knows Hebrew words. This is there's some beautiful things uh, hidden in this. Uh, the word mishath, that word for mutilation, which also is tr- is translated ceremonially corrupt. Um, that that to be mutilated is to be ceremonially corrupt, which is why it's profaning the sanctuary. Uh, that word is used one other time in the Old Testament, only one other time, one other place, and it's in Isaiah 52. It's right before this, it's part of this passage in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, about Jesus. This passage that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading. And this is what it says. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, this is talking to the servant, uh, about the servant. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That word marred is mishath. Jesus was mishath. He was marred. Jesus, the offering of God, the son of God, the only one without blemish, was the high priest offering the offering of himself and he became blemished for us. The blemishless one, the one who cannot dwell in the presence of the common, becomes common, becomes blemished, becomes broken so that we and the eunuch can come into the presence of God. This God is radically inclusive. He's radically inclusive. And he doesn't do that to the expense of exclusion. He says, I am holy. No one can come in my presence unless they are holy. So I will make you holy and I will do it at the cost of my own life. Jesus dies to make us holy. He dies to include us. There is no one as inclusive as this Christ. There is nothing that compares to this news. Isaiah 53, it's the foretelling of the Jesus who would come and make the eunuch acceptable in the presence of God and those who are spiritually eunuchs who have mutilated their souls by their sin in a sense. Those who have uncleanness in their hearts, 
and mutilation in their hearts, he restores. And he does it at great cost to himself. This Jesus is incredible. It's the best news in the world. And the Ethiopian heard it, and he believed it, and he rejoiced in it. Verse 36 through 37, it says, And they were going along the road, and he came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, a beautiful thing about baptism, baptism in the New Testament kind of corresponds to, uh, it, to uh, what's it called? Circumcision in the Old Testament. Well, depending on the type of eunuch that this was, he may not have had something to be circumcised, and here he receives a symbol of inclusion into the family of God. That baptism for us as Christians is this symbol that identifies us with the death of Jesus and the resurrection to new life. That's what baptism is. Is It also has this imagery of cleansing. Uh, In Acts, later in the book of Acts, we see this. It says uh, in Acts 22, 6, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That there is this imagery of washing away your sins. Baptism does not save you. It doesn't make you forgiven. It's this image that accompanies our calling upon the name of the Lord. It's this image that, that we, we do in obedience to Jesus to show what's happened in our hearts. And it is this image of the cleansing that God does to all of us in our uncleanness through our connection to Jesus. And so he says, what prevents me from being baptized? And, and this is what, uh, what he doesn't say to him is, well, you're a eunuch. No, he says nothing. Nothing present, prevents him from being baptized. So they pull over and he gets in the water and he's baptized. Uh, we're having a baptism next week. We talked about that. If you are a Christian and maybe you've become one in this moment, you've believed in Jesus and you want to give your life to him, you want to dedicate your life to him, you want to be initiated formally into the family of God and, and show what has happened in your heart, man, be baptized next week. Talk to us after the service. Talk to me, talk to Brian, talk to Jordan. We would love to celebrate what God's done in your heart together. And by we, I don't just mean we, the staff. I mean, this whole room would love to celebrate you, all the followers of Jesus, what God has done in your life. He, he didn't see a reason to wait. And so he gets baptized. And, and the interesting thing about this is uh, what, what happens is the eunuch becomes a follower of Jesus, but he doesn't get healed. Um, Philip has been working miracles, but he doesn't, a miracle doesn't happen to heal the eunuch. Um, But the eunuch is cleansed, he's changed, he's acceptable to God, not just because of his eunuchness, but because of his sin, the deeper problem, he's accepted fully into God's family. And there is no broken part of you, I want you to know that God, that the cross of Christ does not reach there is no part of you that is not redeemable, healable in, in all the various ways. I, I believe that anyone with any f- physical dysfunction in the kingdom of God will be healed when Christ returns. I, I, I believe that. You don't have to believe that specific thing. But what I know is that regardless, we are going to have eternal joy and satisfaction in the way that God made us, in, in the way that he's made us, not in this life only, but as the way he's making us holy as he is holy. And so this unit comes to Jesus 
and he's saved, and he's forgiven. He's made holy, he's cleansed. And this is the beauty of Christianity. God doesn't call us to fix ourselves up and come to him. He calls us to to come to him, turning from our brokenness, turning from our sin, that is, and saying, I don't want that, I want you, and to come receive the gift of forgiveness. And then he makes us holy. First by saying, I declare you holy with the holiness of Christ. His righteousness is accredited to you. That's our right standing with God, nothing else. And then in our lives, he shapes us and makes us more like him. And this is the best news in the world. God is infinitely uh, more exclusive than us because of his holiness. And he's infinitely more inclusive than us because his holiness leads to this kind of sacrificial love This is the good news, that Jesus is the only way for everyone. Exclusive, inclusive. He is the only way for everyone. He's the only way. There's no other way to the Father but through me, Jesus said. And it's for everyone who would come to him. He offers it to anyone. Come to me, all you who are thirsty, weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you streams of living water to flow up from within you. It's the only way for everyone. So what does this mean for us as we're trying to be the church? We're asking, should the church be exclusive or inclusive? The answer is, is yes, both in this way, that we go out and we proclaim Jesus as the only way, and we proclaim him that way to everyone, everyone we encounter. This is what it meant for Philip. If we look at his story, we see, uh, as we continue, verse 39, it says, And when he came up, up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. This is crazy. This dude just got teleported somewhere else. Uh, amazing. Uh, I don't know if it's ever happened to you. It hasn't to me. And so they come out of the water, and... And he's teleported, and what happens? The eunuch just goes his way rejoicing. It doesn't say, he's so amazed by what happened. It doesn't even say if he's like, whoa, where'd he go? He's just rejoicing. I'm in the family of God. And Philip goes. He's transported to this other place, and look what he does. Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So Philip is teleported to a different city, And he just starts preaching. He just starts proclaiming Christ to everyone. We don't know if he was amazed. I'm sure he was. But it it, it just fuels him all the more to go tell more people about this God. This is the common thread in Philip's story. If we trace back to the beginning, uh, he... He's a man who's been picked as a as a, one of the leaders in the early church because he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of wisdom. And then we see him preaching as soon as they're scattered. He's preaching in all of these places and in Samaria. And then he gets sent to this eunuch. And he just, what's he do when he gets there? He preaches. And then he gets sent, transported somewhere else. And what's he do? He preaches. He just keeps preaching Jesus as the only way to everyone, everywhere he goes. God sends us out to be like Philip here, radically exclusive. Jesus is the only way and radically inclusive, offering him to everyone. And so if God teleported you, I want to ask you this. If God teleported you right now, if he teleported you to a foreign nation, to a hostile territory that doesn't accept Christ, that doesn't love, like doesn't enjoy or accept, rejoice in our exclusive message, would you preach the exclusive message of Jesus to those people? What if he teleported you to your dinner table with your closest family and friends? 
What if he teleported you to your workplace Monday morning with your boss or your coworkers? What about after this, as we go out into this city, maybe you're going to have lunch somewhere. Would you proclaim Christ as the only way to everyone? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that every moment of every day needs to be preaching the gospel. Um, we, we have to eat. We're called to be faithful in things that God's given us to steward, taking care of our family, taking care of our, our jobs, doing wholesome work to his glory. There's glory in these things. There's good in these things. God loves these things. But does your Christian identity ever, is there an off switch on it? Do you have an off switch on your identity? Do you have an off switch on your character? Are you the same person in every context? Is your Christianity more like a chameleon or an elephant? You know, a chameleon can blend in wherever they go. Uh, they, can, they can shift and change the way they are to fit in with the surroundings. Everyone notices the elephant in the room. Is your faith the elephant in the rooms that you're in? Do people know that you love Jesus and that you love them and that you want them to know Jesus, even if they disagree with you? Or is it a complete secret to everybody? We want to be people who, who are known as followers of Jesus, people who proclaim him to everyone, everywhere as the exclusive way. And this is a hard thing to preach. Um, this can be a hard thing in the 21st century in Western Canada, in, in Canada, not Western Canada, but the Western world, to preach an exclusive message. Jesus is the only way in all other ways lead to destruction, hell. To preach that exclusive message can be frightening. Paul, Paul said this, uh, well, Jesus said that we were going to be persecuted for following Jesus, that people aren't all going to accept our message no matter how well we explain it. But we need courage to share it. Paul said this. He said uh, in Romans, um, Romans 1, 16, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul wasn't ashamed of the exclusivity of this message. The exclusivity propelled him to tell more people about it. It's the power of God to salvation. Philip wasn't ashamed of this message. He went joyfully preaching this message to anyone who God would send him to. And for us, if, we're, if, if we struggle with that, that idea that this, that this impulse in us that says, I should be, feel embarrassed or shameful that I'm preaching that there's only one way, that it's Christ... I, I want to draw your heart and your attention back to the message we just heard. That the, the, the exclusivity and the inclusivity of Christ and of God, they, they come from the same impulse, the same truth, the same reality in God, that the holiness of God, the all-surpassing immeasurable holiness of God that makes his presence exclusive. That holiness is his character. It is the holy character of love. It's the same holiness that compels him to die on the cross for you. 
That holiness is the most beautiful reality, the center of the universe that we are to look at and enjoy and see. And that holiness, the sight of that glory that dies to include you, despite your sin, me, despite my sin, that holiness is a shame killer. It makes eager missionaries at first sight. It is love at first sight. When you see this Christ, he is exclusive, yes, but he is inclusive. He is the only way, but he is for everyone who would come to him. Preach him shamelessly. Look at this truth often. Look at it in the Old Testament. Look at the glory of this holiness and this Christ in the Old Testament. Look at it in the New Testament. And look at it in every moment of your life, in every gift that is purchased by the blood of Christ that comes to you. Every good thing, all good things, they come from God and they're purchased by the blood of Jesus. And why did he purchase it? Because God has the most holy character of all. That love, uncomparable, immeasurable. And it's for you. He invites you to come to him. So whether you are a a non, you've not followed Jesus, man, come to him today. And if you're a follower of Jesus, look at the one who calls you to come. Look how great this message is and shamelessly go proclaim it to everyone. Let's pray. God, I I love you. (laughs) I'm thankful that you are a holy God, uh, that you are a, a good God. Father, you are righteous, you are true, you are merciful, you are mighty, and you are holy. And this is the best news in the world. You are exclusive. Uh, Your presence is not common. It is immeasurably holy. And you did the ultimate thing to bring us into that presence, Lord. I pray that those who are in this room who have not known you would come to know you today. Please, Father, bring more into the fold, more sheep into the fold, more believers into your family. Would people be born again today? And Father, would you help us to walk in the boldness that comes from seeing that this exclusivity is not bad news. It is a part of this glorious, glorious good news. We need you. We love you. We can't live without you, Father. We don't want to try. And we're so thankful we don't have to. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.